Welcome to the Manuscript Academy podcast, brought to you by a writer and an agent who both believe that education is key. The beauty is the people you meet along the way. And that community makes all the difference. Here at the Manuscript Academy, you can learn the skills, make the connections, and have access to experts all from home. I'm Julie Kingsley. And I'm Jessica Sinsheimer. Put down your pens, pause your word counts, and enjoy. I'm so pleased to welcome Dana Kay of KPK Publicity. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat all things publicity and book publishing. Yay. So let me read your bio. It's super impressive. Uh, Dana received her BA in fiction writing from Columbia College, Chicago. After college, she worked as a freelance writer and a book critic. Her work has appeared in the Chicago Sun-Times, Time Out Chicago, Crime Spree Magazine, and Bitch Magazine. Kay Publicity was born when she was asked by a fellow writer in the publishing industry to help promote her debut novel. She frequently speaks on the topics of social media, branding, and publishing trends. And her commentary has been featured on websites like the Huffington Post, Little Pink Book, and NBC Chicago. So Dana, we're so happy to have you. I remember meeting you many years ago at a conference and thinking that you seemed like a real person. Um, Well, a real, very smart person. And in my time, it wasn't the image of what publicists were like. But I, I just appreciated how approachable Dana was. I felt like I could ask her any question I had about her work and she wouldn't say I was dumb for not knowing it. And yeah, she was fun to hang out with. And it just, it wasn't intimidating the way that I'd expected. So Dana, I really appreciate um, you being so approachable. I I mean, I don't see any reason not to be approachable. Like we're all in this together. And so I feel like it's, it's one of those things where the more we all know, whether it's from the agent side, the publicity side or the writer side, the better it is for all of us. And I also think, you know, this idea of not looking like the typical New York publicist, at least at the time, maybe I'll start wearing shoulder pads sometime soon, but (laughs) the, 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 it was really an advantage because I think when you're starting out, whether you're starting your own agency or you're starting your writing process or being a publicist, you, you want to stand out in some way. And so if people were really drawn to the the broad with 40 years experience and, you know, who lived in New York, like that wasn't going to be me anyway. So why would I dress the part and try to look the part? And instead I came at it from a different perspective of book publicity is changing. The media is changing so rapidly. And I want to discover the next wave of media outlets that are going to chat about books. So this was 2009. And so the world was so different at the time. And it's kind of amazing that, you know, it's 10, it's a little over 10 years and so much has changed, but that, you know, Twitter wasn't commonplace at the time. So when I would tell publishers, there's this thing and you follow authors, they're like, Ooh, following. That's so creepy. It sounds like a stalker platform. And now (laughs) the the term follow is so commonplace. And Mm -hmm. so the, I feel like what's, what really was an advantage to me was this idea that I could be at the forefront of all this changing technology and changing platforms and changing media in a way that definitely not the publishers, but also I don't think the other publicists in my field were on top of. How did you get started and know that you were the person to do all of these things that were changing so fast? So I had been reviewing books for a couple years at that point. Um, this was in 
like I said, early 2009, and I, I started to see the writing on the wall. I, I was seeing how by the outlets I was writing for were cutting their freelance staff or they're cutting their actual staff. Uh, the Tribune had filed for bankruptcy, and I was mm. writing for their competitor, the Chicago Sun-Times, and I was like, well, that's they're probably not far behind either. So what one, what's going to be the state of my career, and then also what's going to be the state of book reviews? And I knew that I what I loved about reviewing was telling people what to read. I I think we all do this if we're book nerds. We love pairing the perfect book with the perfect person and getting them to enjoy that book. And that was what I really loved, especially because I was reviewing a lot of books that weren't going to get a lot of coverage otherwise. A lot of small presses, a lot of mid-list authors who just weren't going to get coverage without my article or blog post or whatever. So... I loved that idea of helping authors reach their readers. And so I was like, okay, well, book publicity or book marketing is probably a natural fit. And so I started looking for jobs in New York and I was applying kind of half-heartedly. I, I, I am pretty good at filling out applications and, and, and getting, getting job interviews, but for whatever reason, there was this block and I realized, oh, it's because I really don't want to live in New York. Like, I really don't. You know. <laughs> there are real reasons to not want to live in New York, definitely. <laughs> not just the cost. It's very stressful. <laughs> There's a lot of things. Yeah, I just am not. I, I don't mind visiting. I love the restaurants. I love, you know, going and seeing my publishing friends and having meetings and then coming home to Chicago, which is, you know, a little bit cleaner, a little bit more accessible um, and has a great lakefront path. And so I wasn't game to move. And so I said, okay, well, if I'm not game to move, then what does that look like? And, you know, unfortunately, Chicago, as much as it has so many fantastic writers, it doesn't have a lot of publishing. Um, there is a conglomerate of independent publishers here that are fantastic. They just don't have the budget to hire a lot of people. Um, and then there's, of course, source books out, but it's out in the burbs. It would be like Jessica, like driving to Connecticut from Manhattan every day. It's Naperville, right? It's Naperville, yeah, <laughs> so far. And so what I realized is like, okay, I may have to do this myself. And as I was making this realization, one of my friends had her debut novel coming out and this was 2009. It was like the height of the recession. And she was a debut unknown novelist coming out in hardcover. Mm, and scary. she was like, yeah, <laughs> yeah <that time's> <laughs> I need to do something. Like I need, I'm going to need all the help I can get. And she said she was going to hire an outside publicist. And I, as a, a reviewer had been pitched by, publicists all the time. I was like, okay, you need someone who's going to follow up because people forget. You need someone who's not going to send packages of glitter or other <laughs> creepy things or things that get really messy. And I just kept telling her all the things she should look for in an outside publicist. And she just looks at me. She's like, well, why can't you just do it? Mm. <laughs> and so I'm like, hmm, maybe I could just do it. And so we, this was at a writer's conference. And the next, the Monday after the conference, we got together for breakfast and we just hashed out what a campaign would look like. And Jamie Frevoletti had was not only a great ideal client because she's so wonderful and a talented writer, but she also is a risk taker and loves doing new cool things. And so all these ideas that she had and all those ideas that I had, we were able to just run with. And I think that's what really set me up for the types of campaigns and the types of clients I like to work with because I want to make sure that if I have a funky idea that I think could work, I don't want someone who's like, oh, this has never been done before. I don't feel comfortable. I want someone who's going to let me roll with it and trust to make it a success. And if it's not successful, we've done, you know, me and Jamie did a couple things that weren't as successful. 
But it's just like, hey, we tried. And it, there's nothing worse than not trying. We'd rather try and fail than just play it safe. And I want to make sure everyone understands like the scope of what you do. So I kind of just read um, all the different things that you do for writers because <laughs> I think that it's hard for them because whenever when people are in the trenches, it's like they're not, um, I don't think they're really aware of the scope of what marketing looks at that end. Yeah. So I'm going to read it. So we have author branding and messaging. We have print, radio, and television campaigns. We have online publicity and outreach to social influencers. We have email marketing and social media campaigns, event booking and speaking engagements, creation of all promotional materials, advertising campaigns, and this is my favorite. I think it's why I wanted to read this entire list, crisis consultations. (laughs) (laughs) Like Olivia Pope or... Yeah, not my favorite thing to do, but I definitely get tapped for that. Um, so obviously, I can't share the clients of the, that happens, but um, we do get tapped by publishers, some authors, but it's usually the publisher or a literary agent with a client who is going through something, whether it's you know something on book Twitter that's happening or a media appearance that went awry or something that happened. And so we've consulted on how to best communicate their message during that period of crisis or how to best respond or if to respond during that, during that crisis. So it's something that I don't want to handle, but I'm happy to tell other people how to handle it. (laughs) I'm sure people really appreciate you being there when they're freaking out and don't know what to do. Yeah. And I think that that's really what it is. I think that it's really isolating. I think the book publishing world can be really isolating, if, especially in this age of cancel culture and the the social media flies so quickly. And yeah, we are in this bubble. And so when I get a call from somebody saying, oh my gosh, this crisis is happening on Twitter and it's so big and I need to put out a press release and I need to do this. And I look at it, I'm like, no one else is talking about it except this like hub of individuals on Twitter and I would just ignore it. Like it's, but it's easy to feel like it's so big because we follow all those people. So it feels like everyone is talking about it. And yet the majority of the reading public has no idea this is happening. And so this is also why this is also one of the reasons that I love doing what I do on the flip side, not the crisis side, but that you can generate this feeling like everyone is talking about this one book. You know, I've talked about books and I'm in a couple of entrepreneur groups and I've talked about books that it seems like everyone knows about. And then I talk to anyone outside of the world of entrepreneurship and they're like, what book? Who are you talking about? (laughs) And it's right. It's the same with fiction or like mysteries and thrillers or romance. Like you, if you find that community that reads exactly what you are promoting, you can generate this feeling that everyone is talking about the book and that they need in order to be a part of the zeitgeist they need to go out and buy that book and that's really what effective pr is all about is to generate this feeling whether it's getting a lot of reviews or getting a lot of social mentions or having an email marketing campaign or a podcast tour whatever it is that your typical reader whether it's a you know romance reader a literary fiction reader whatever it is that your typical reader is seeing your book everywhere and gets this feeling that they need to be in on the conversation, that they are going to be left out if they do not go out and not only buy, but read this book right away. And so that's always my, this is my favorite part of doing it is like, okay, well, who's the reader? 
where are they getting their information and how can we hit all of those things at the right time? That's such a a smart way of going about that. Um, You know, it's so interesting. I almost feel like you're like a life coach for books. (laughs) I was like, like, this is what my life coach does for me. Exactly what you just said, you know, like, and I love that. And I love that um, your sounding board to, you know, when to make that pivot, when it is necessary. And ultimately it's the author's decision. So like I, I will give my opinion and whatever the author decides, we're going to stand by the author unless it's something that's, you know, I, I can't really think of anything that has caused us to part ways. Um, but in, but I think that's just because we're very picky about our clients. So I, we have, I'm a pretty good judge of character. And so I think that if the off, it, ultimately it's the off, it's not my name on the book jacket we always voice our opinions. Um, when I say we, I meant like our capable city team. It's not the Royal we. And we always voice our opinions because we wouldn't want something to go unaddressed because the author didn't think of it, but ultimately it's the author's name on the book jacket. And so I think that that's really important that they feel good about what they are putting out there. So you just said something there um, about how you choose your clients, you know, that you don't take every project. Can you um, go through that a little bit with us? Yes. So we have the majority of our work is full service campaigns. So that's, you know, soup to nuts. Every part of your public image is our responsibility. And with that, it, it comes a lot of trust and a lot of communication, and we need to make sure that we are the right fit because not every book is the right fit for us, and we are not the right fit for every book. So the majority of our new clients come through referrals. I will say that of the referrals, we, we get a couple dozen inquiries every day, and I should, no, maybe a couple dozen every week. Um, feels like every day, but of those, probably about 1% of those are the right, maybe the right fit. And I respond to everybody, of course. And if something does sound like the right fit, I get on a phone call with the author. We talk through their goals, their vision, and I start to assess whether or not I like this person and want to talk to them on a regular basis. And also if we are the right people to execute on their vision and their goals and if our goals align. If that's the case, then I read the book I read the whole book because the ending is important. And if I still feel like we could 100% stand by the book, then I will offer a proposal. By the time we get to that point, the proposal will probably be accepted simply because we talk about pricing, we talk about calendar, we talk about all these things. I think the only times we've not gone through on the proposal or not gotten the client after a proposal is if they were shopping and asking for a few different things and then they see our proposal and they like someone else's better. It sometimes happens. But for those that make it through, we operate on like a six to seven month campaign. It's an, it's thousands of dollars. It's a, it's not a small investment. And so that's why I, we only probably take on 1%, if that less than 1% of the clients that are reaching out to us. And that is the way I had done things for about eight years and I was realizing that there was a lot of authors that were really talented, but I, but didn't have the budget or that they were self-publishing. And we only work with traditionally published authors for a variety of reasons. And But there were people who could be helped that we weren't the right fit to help them and that or that they couldn't afford the kind of help we were offering. And so 
I for about a year and a half, I tweaked with different options. I did an e-course. I did a group coaching program. I did all these different things. And I finally feel like we got it. Um, so we just launched in July a membership site called Your Breakout Book, where it's basically me teaching authors how to do this themselves on an ongoing basis so that none of the stuff I do is magical. Like publicists aren't magic. And the whole like Rolodex contacts thing is such a myth because media is a revolving door. It's changing all the time. So if you're just relying on your relationships, well, those relationships are ever changing. And so it's really about making relationships more than it is having like some virtual Rolodex. So for the authors who were either not the right fit or they can't afford us or they're indie authors or whatever it may be, we have this other program that if we can't manage your public image, then I'd love to teach them how to do it themselves. I love your um, the way that you're looking at this and saying, okay, I can help this many people, but then if I go to a membership site, I can really hit the masses with it. So I think mm-hmm. that's genius. Thanks. I'm really quick to create things. <laughs> and so we did like... I was like, oh, I could do a group coaching program. Okay, let's... And then like a week later, I launched it and it was fine. It was just a lot of time, a lot more time than I anticipated. And yeah, we tried different things. But with this membership site, like I went... It took like... I took three months to develop the curriculum, develop the plan, develop the marketing. Then we did a a three-month beta group. And so I tweaked... I basically created content from that beta group. They would say, okay, I just finished this and here's what I need next. And so after like six, I think about six full months of testing and creating, uh, we finally launched it. So like, I'm really happy with how it turned out and it's working. <laughs> like I just yeah, got in. Can you give some, um, some details for the listeners about that? Like where they can find that and. Yeah, sure. It's just capability.com slash your breakout book. And it. It details kind of what's involved with the membership and an option if you want to add on coaching. So a couple of our members who want more one-on-one support can add coaching to that package. Um, but I think the for the for the authors, I think what's really beneficial is not just the trainings and not just the access to me, but also I pair everyone who wants one and with an accountability partner. And so what's been really rewarding for me is being able to not just teach authors how to publicize and market their books, but to also connect them with other authors. We get a lot of authors who are like, I have never met another author before and I don't know what I'm doing. And it's really rewarding to be able to pair them with, to pair them with an accountability partner, not just for making sure that they do what they need to do, but also for that networking and camaraderie. Oh my gosh. So if you, if there was one thing for the listeners, like if there was one thing that they, that you think they could do, like what's their first step when it comes to marketing their book on their own? To really get a handle on who you are and what you write. Mm-hmm. And this is so much more than your genre and your age group. Like I hear a lot of, I, we go to a lot of networking events clearly and writers conferences as you guys do. And I get, how many times have you had an author come up to you and be like, hi, I'm John Doe and I write mysteries, right? And you don't remember John Doe because mysteries, it's not descriptive. There's nothing to latch onto. And so getting a sense of really getting down to your characters, your setting, the, the themes of your book, and also what makes you unique as an author, I think is really important. So I think if you are able to take some time to journal about 
the themes in your book, the characters, the motivations, the settings, and how that relates to you. So if you are a cop writing police procedurals, that's interesting. That's a unique. So saying, oh, I'm a cop who uses his experience to inform his police procedurals writing, or I write Chicago thrillers and I'm a proud Chicagoan. Like that's something that people can latch onto and remember you way more than just saying your name and your genre. So I think getting the first step would be really getting a sense of who you are and what you write. I love that so much. The whole idea of it, that it's kind of almost like I'm not single, um, but like the idea of when people go to like speed dating and mm. when like how people present themselves, that first sentence is so incredibly important I've heard. And, um, and how, if you really think about that sentence, like, you know, what that means and how you're going to throw your energy out there, because that's where connections are formed. So super. Dana, do you have any tips specifically for introverts who are promoting their work? Yes. We're a lot of us are introverts, I think, in the book world. Um, I, I myself am highly introverted. I love being by myself, but I also love talking to people. And I think that as an introvert, it's just really important that we're monitoring our energy levels. So if you're an introvert who is, let's say, a little bit more socially awkward or has some social anxiety, I always recommend that you start by asking questions of the other person. And to be frank, this is the best networking tool, regardless of introverts or extroverts, but it's highly helpful for introverts. So it's been studied, I can't cite the actual study, but that people who people will remember conversations more fondly if they did most of the talking. So I will think of this interview way more fondly than you will because I'm doing most of the talking. <laughs> And so the idea is to ask questions of the other person and get them to do most of the talking, listen to their responses, and follow up with additional interesting questions. And what's really great about this for introverts in particular is that it takes so much of the pressure off us to be witty and charming and say the exact right thing. So if you just ask questions and follow your curiosity, they are going to think of you very fondly, even if you don't get in that you are an author or your name or what you write or that your book is out or where you live, like they're just going to think of you fondly. And that's all you want. You want people to have a favorable impression of you. And so I recommend just letting the person ask, letting the person do most of the talking, ask questions and stop pressuring yourself to get something in, like get that tagline in or get that, um, you know, your your book title in, or I think this is especially true of agents. I've seen a lot of writers. I'm sure you get this too. They approach agents and there's like deer in headlights. Like, Oh my God, I have to tell her my whole synopsis and my exact fate, like my exact perfect pitch, or she's not going to take my manuscript. And this is a crucial moment in my life. And it's so anxiety producing. And when it, it stresses us out too, actually, right. <laughs> when people sit down and they're like, all right, and you can tell they have like four bullet points in their head and they just want to get them out exactly like word for word, how they practiced. Oh my gosh, it makes me so nervous on their behalf. Well, and it's nervous for you because you want to make sure they feel comfortable. You're thinking about their emotions and their feelings as well. Whereas if they sat down and they're like, I just love to learn more about your process for querying how you dig through the slush like what what are the things that jump out at you i've just learned like to learn more about how'd you get into agenting that's going to put you way more at ease and you're going to remember yeah. that 
yeah, I appreciate that they treat me like a person. It's actually pretty rare. Um, and if people go in, obviously rehearsed, it kind of defines the interaction as a high stress interaction and it doesn't need to be. And it makes it really transactional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it's, it's like, I am sitting here, I paid to be in this pitch session and I am going to have a transaction with you as opposed to having just a conversation. Like it's why I do coaching calls and yes, it's a transaction. Like if they're, if they're paying to have a call with me, it is a transaction. But the first thing I say is like, how's your week going? What have you been feeling about this? And just asking them questions to put them more at ease. So it's not just like, okay, I'm here. I have an hour of Dana's time and I need to get through these seven questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, It just makes, creates a different feeling. I think you also end up solving more if you're there as a whole person versus a person on a mission. Agreed. And you never know what you're going to come across because I think also what people forget is that if you're interviewing agents, if you're pitching agents or publishers or media, like you're also evaluating if they're the right fit for you. So this idea that you're just going to talk at them and hope that they accept you is kind of bizarre because in the end, you then want to know, oh, okay, am I the right fit for them? Are they the right fit for me? Do we have a good rapport? Like, these are all really important questions. Yeah. That's kind of like going into dating. Like, well, once they fall in love with me, then I'll decide if I like them. <laughs> like, you have to be on the same page a little bit. Um, or it's not going to work out. It's not like if I do A, B, and C, then they'll do, you know, D, E, and F, and everything will be perfect. Yeah, I, that's exa- it is like dating. That's a, I mean, you guys, like, that's a great way to put it. I was actually thinking about the, as our kiddo who was in private school when we first did the first round of interviews, it was very much like, we need to be on our best behavior and we need to say all the right things and we need to do all this. And then the second time around, it was like, no, we need to make sure this school is right for us. Like, yeah, we want to impress them and get in, but like, ultimately, we're, the ones sending our kid there and we are spending a bunch of money to get our kid there. So like, we need to make sure it's the right fit for us. So I think if we focus less on the transaction and just more on getting to know people and getting like info gathering almost and just saying like, okay, this is what this person's about. This is their style. This is what they write. This is what they're interested in. This is what they do outside of publishing. This is where they live. If we just follow our curiosities, we're going to have way better relationships, whether it's with our Dates, spouses, <laughs> schools, or whatever it is, um, or writing partners, or editors, or agents. I mean, this this, this whole conversation makes me want to hang out with you, anyways. <laughs> I'm like, I'm gonna come to Chicago. We're gonna have a drink. Um, they do have better pizza. So, I know New Yorkers are gonna beat me up for I that, know, but they have way better pizza. <laughs> so, tell us, what do you do in your free time? What do you do? so you, you know, like you have a partner, you have a kid. Um, like, like, so what, what, what is, what is the non-publishing side of you? Yeah. The thing about being a book person and an entrepreneur is it's kind of all rolled up into one. And so it's, I don't believe in like the, the work life balance. It's like completely integrated. So, you know, my kiddo will come with me to bookstore events or like my clients will hang out with like we'll hang out with clients on the weekends if they're local or if they're coming through for an event they usually stay with us like it's all one big monstrous blend and so I will say that I have my mind on publicity and marketing a good amount of a time including when I'm reading for pleasure and um, but when I'm not working I enjoy 
working out. Um, I do triathlon, so I run and swim and bike. I also got into boxing, so I try to box at least once a week. And fun. It, I, I go to a lunchtime, a weekday lunchtime class, and it's amazing because you'll get to work out so much stress. And I come back to the desk so refreshed. And and then I, we also, you know, I, I like spending time with my my family. We do a lot of, we live in Chicago. We have, there's so many fun things. So we're often like at, in the summer, we go to the beach and the pool. And in the winter, we go to museums and the aquarium and all those things. There's definitely not that much just lying around time. It's a little busy. Do people actually swim in that beautiful lake? I think it's Lake Michigan that like you can walk a couple blocks and go to a beach and people actually swim in it in the summer. Yes. Um, I swim in it. Not there's people who don't, who swim in it, not in the summer. There's a big (laughs) contingent, a polar bear club, a polar bear club here that they swim in it all winter. Oh Um, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, it's definitely one of the cleaner lakes that I've been in. Um, and it's, and there's just nothing like swimming and like looking at a skyline and it's, and there's a a big camaraderie of people that go down to the lake. Um, and I would much rather be in the lake than be in the pool because the pool feels like a hamster wheel a little bit. It's like running on a treadmill. Like if you think about running on a treadmill versus running outside, that's swimming in a pool versus swimming in the lake. (laughs) I was impressed that it has real waves. It does, especially in the winter. <laughs> it, it, you feel it too. It doesn't look like there's. It doesn't look like they're super huge, and then you get in, and it feels like you're swimming in a washing machine. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about how we want writers to treat us like we are people, but that said, it's not great to show up and someone asks what your book is about, and you're like, "Well, so guy, about the guy who does this thing somewhere." <laughs> So how do people prepare, how do, how can authors prepare a tagline or an elevator pitch that sounds natural? So we, I take authors through this process um, in whether they're working with me or they're in the membership program, but we look at what the, we first look at who the protagonist is, because I think people are most drawn to characters. And so we first look at the protagonist, who is your protagonist or your protagonist's like, who do you tend to write about if you write multiple books and multiple genres? Who are you, gra- who are you writing about? Who are you, who do you tend to gravitate, gravitate towards? And then what's the antagonist? Cause this is where the conflict comes in. And so what type of antagonist are you drawn to? Whether it's you know, a villain in a mystery or a thriller, or if it's a force of nature, or if it's someone, the protagonist, something about the protagonist's past, whatever the conflicting force is, we look at that and then we look at the setting and see if the setting is something that we want to incorporate into the tagline or the elevator pitch, whatever it is, because if setting, if it matters, like if the book could not take place anywhere other than, you know, a farmland in Kansas, then we need to incorporate that into the elevator pitch. And then also getting some, getting at some sort of conflict. So I write, you know, saying I write about, Oh, I wish I could just like pull something out of thin air, but I'm not, it actually takes a long time for me to like craft and test and say things out loud. I talk to myself a lot. And so something like, you know, I write about fierce women who are fierce women seeking justice in the 19, in 1920s, New York, something nice. like that. So, I that. right. I just made it up. <laughs> but, <laughs> I wouldn't like, I should just like, I should have prepared like taglines for some of our, some of our authors. Um, but I think that if you 
get to the character first, but then have some sort of conflict right away and then potentially set the stage. That's really what gets people. Like, so I didn't need to tell you like nowhere in that little tagline. Did I say historical or did I say suspense? But if you know, it's women seeking justice. So there's probably some sort of suspense. They're probably not doing that from like, you know, their tea room. And you know, that's in the 1920s. I don't need to say historical. It's implied. So I think looking beyond the genre and the labels and where books are shelved and the reading age is really important. I think because people don't care. You can just, you can, they will get that by your elevator pitch or by your tagline. You don't have to waste words telling them that. Um, my, my background in creative writing means that I have read The Elements of Style by Strunk and White way, 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 way too many times. And it's all ingrained in me. And so I think if any writer is having trouble coming up with a tagline or is like, I don't, I can't do a, or even a synopsis, right? Like I can't put my 350 page book into three pages. Look at the elements of style and look at things like economy of words and every word should have multiple uses and use active language and all of these things. They, it makes for a better synopsis and a way better tagline. I still love the idea of tea room justice. <laughs> tea room justice. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's one of the challenges with um, cozy mysteries. I always find to like get that it's a mystery when it takes place in a spice shop or you know in a knitting circle yeah. or something like that. Because you, it doesn't. It's not inherently um, dangerous to be in a knitting circle, but you have to, you have to convey like when you know someone turns up with knitting needles stabbed through their heart. Yikes. It's up to the, the <laughs> right. <laughs> That's what it is. It's, it's so, I mean, this stuff is so much fun. Like I, the idea that like I can read a book that this is my job. Like right now, after we talk, the only thing left on my to-do list is to read a hundred pages of a manuscript. Like that, that is my job is pretty friggin' amazing. And so I really love, like, this is the fun part. This is the part authors hate. They hate having to distill their their 10 years of work and 350-page piece of work into marketing copy. They really, I find, don't like that. But to me, this is the fun part. This is the part where we can come up with creative creative ways to get people excited about the book. And going back to you, you had mentioned earlier the sense of audience, like who you're talking to, it it changes. And so we also try to create multiple taglines and multiple bits of copy and that we use it for different things. So if I'm pitching a women's magazine, they're going to be interested in things that are, that a, let's say a mystery magazine or a radio host may not be interested in. So I think it's also important for writers to know, have a sense of audience. And let's say if they are talking to, if they're talking to a group of mystery lovers, then signaling that it's a mystery is important. But if you're talking to a group of just general fiction readers and saying, oh, I write mysteries, it may turn some people off. They may be like, oh, the stuff you find at like Walmart or the grocery store, and that's lowbrow, and I don't read that. Whereas if you talk about, you know, the fierce woman seeking justice, then they're like, ooh, it's, that's exciting. I think we had, we had one author who had this great uh, post-apocalyptic, like the road with zombies. It was so great. <laughs> but right, nice. I like zombies. Lots of people don't. 
Hmm. So guess what? I was very wary of when I brought up the zombies and when I didn't, <laughs> or it was also kind of sexy. It was, um, uh, it was published by, uh, gosh, it was either Mira or Luna. Now I can't remember about a division of Harlequin. And so there was like love and sex in it. And so I would also be thoughtful about when I brought that up, depending on who the audience was. So it's important to like, have a sense of your book enough that you can pivot based on who you're talking to. Cause you don't want someone to write off your book just because you, they don't do zombies, right? We all say like, oh, I don't do zombies. I don't do children in jeopardy. I don't do this. I don't do that. You want to get them excited enough that they don't care about the zombies when they get to that page. And I think regardless of concept, if you really connect with the character, the other stuff won't matter as much as soon as you have that connection. 100% fully agree. So I'm looking at, I'm thinking of, you know, kind of like a final question here that would kind of encompass this whole amazing conversation. And I guess I'm wondering, when is, when does an author know that it's time to, you know, take some of their advance and go for the publicist? Like where, where is the line where they're like, so I think some authors, I mean, that's really confusing. Can you kind of explain to us when they should jump in to get that higher level of, um, Yeah. So I cannot speak to anyone's financial like budgeting, right? Like, so I think that if you are counting on this as rent money, then I do not think you should hire a publicist. I think that you should do what you can on your own. So I think so much of this is less about, less about when they're ready in their career and more about economics. So I think you need to figure out what makes the most sense for you and your family and your personal financial place. I do believe that anyone, regardless of advance, regardless of publishing deal, regardless of publisher, can have a breakout book if they put in the work. So I think that the one of the main reasons we don't work with indie authors is because if you hire a publicist and invest those thousands of dollars distribution plays a huge role. If we're talking about people feeling like your book is everywhere, they need to also be met with that book at the point of sale. So if you are in your car or on the subway, Jessica, listening to a (laughs) podcast and you're hearing hearing an author talk about their book, 50-50 shot that you're going to remember it later. But then you may get to your office or you get to work and you open your email and you see like, a book bub deal for an author. You're like, oh, that sounds familiar. It's the same author you heard on the podcast. And you're like, oh, that sounds familiar, but you don't click it because you're at work and you don't have time right now. And then later you're getting lunch and someone mentions a book they're reading. And you know, you get you have to get all these impressions for it to even register that you've remembered this book. And one of those impressions needs to be at the point of sale. Like it needs to be at the front table of Barnes and Noble. It needs to be on the front page of Amazon. It needs to be in an email marketing newsletter that gets to you and recommends this book with a one-click buy. And so when you have an indie author or an author who's traditionally published, but it's print-on-demand, so you're not getting widespread distribution, it's not going to have the same impact. Not saying it's not going to have an impact. It's just not going to be the same. And it's not going to be enough to earn back the return on the investment of the, let's say, eight to $10,000 you're spending on a publicist. So that's why one of our core values is my, my core value is not to bankrupt authors. <laughs> that's like a very important tenet of ours. So if I do not believe that they're going to earn a return on investment, then I don't recommend the full service campaign. Then I would recommend your breakout book. If I don't think your breakout book is going to earn a return on investment, I also don't recommend that. 
So I think you, what authors have to realize is that if they're going to invest money with a publicist, it should earn a return on their investment. So you have to think about, is my book widely distributed? Is my publisher going to be putting some money behind co-op or is there going to be advertising? Is there going to be other things that the publicity efforts are just going to amplify? If the answer is yes, then it does make sense to hire a publicist. If the answer is no, then my recommendation is to figure out what you can do yourself and get some guidance or get some help or hire a VA to help you do the work. But it's really, really challenging to earn a return if your books are not uh, widely distributed and widely available. And if the answer to that is yes, what's the time scale of when to set all of that up? Because I know most authors ask for a publicist much too late. <laughs> that is true. I <laughs> We tend to start campaigns six to seven months in advance of pub. The reason for that is because, one, that's when books are usually available, like galleys are usually available. And it's also when monthly magazines and trade publications begin looking at their, those books for that issue. So if you have a June book, most monthly magazines, like the Red Books and the Good Housekeepings, the GQs, the, all of those, they're looking at their June issue in January. And so we're pitching now, we're pitching our May titles for most of those monthly magazines right now. And so if you wait too long, you're going to lose that window. Additionally, good publicists are full. A lot. So I, I recommend actually, if you think you want to hire an outside publicist, do it as soon as you sign the book contract. Even if you don't have an official pub date yet, as soon as the book contract is signed, begin researching, begin looking, because by the time you schedule phone calls and get a sense of who you want to work with, the one you really, really want may be full if you don't, if you wait, if you wait to start at the six month mark. And they're never going to be mad at you for being too organized. No, I mean, I'm reading a book right now for a client. Actually, she's next on my docket, but it's publishing in 2021. We wouldn't be starting for six months, but I'm game to read it and get something on my calendar. I mean, I talk about this with my entrepreneur groups who have much shorter contracts. They're like, wait, you're booked to 2021. How amazing is that? I'm like, it's a little nuts, but it's it, we love get. I love getting things on my calendar in advance because I know what our client list is going to look like. I can start preparing, and I can also start the conversation early. So some of the let's say book festivals or awards or some of these early on decisions can I can still be thinking of those authors well in advance of when their book comes out. So it's never. I would say you're never too early. The only time you're too early is if you don't have a book deal or at least a path to publication. So, Julie, is it okay with you if I ask one more question? Because I'm terribly curious. Okay. So yes, we love to ask this of all of our guests. Dana, if you happen to have Google-level funding and all the time you needed to create something, what would you make? Oh, my gosh. And I knew you were going to ask something like this. I was like, Because <laughs> we like your brain. <laughs> Google-level funding and all the time in the world. Yeah, like you could theoretically pause time, do this, and then get back to your life and you haven't missed anything. <laughs> oh my gosh. I, there's like so many ideas are flooding through my head right now. So this is totally off topic. One of the things that's high on my mind is our earth and the state of our earth going into the future. Yeah. 
And so we've been reading a lot about, you know, single-use plastics and recycling programs and how, like, wind energy is actually causing more pollution, like, all this stuff that I mean, everything feels like a I'm going to look that up later. I did not know that. Oh, yes. There's this – oh, gosh, yeah. It, you can't, we can't win, basically. This is the problem. So, like, we – you know, there's this plant in Israel that's recycling everything, but I don't know how much energy they're using to, like, recycle everything. And then – the wind turbines are emitting this chemical that's actually hurting the ozone layer. And like, they're also killing birds. It's just all this stuff. And so what I would want to do is figure out a way that we can have some, some, that we can generate energy that would not burn a hole in our atmosphere, would not cost millions of dollars and that we can, you know, drive our cars, you, you, we could drive our cars, use our gadgets, whatever we need to do without destroying our, without destroying our planet. That's what I would, that's a very, very lofty goal. But since you said Google level funding and I could pause time, then I think that's what I would want to work on. Also maybe get some publicists to um, work on the political aspect of letting that happen and getting all your planets <laughs> and everything. <laughs> you know, like we could get on a whole other tangent about like, because I'm far from none of us are. I guess the point really is, is like none of us are perfect. So like, yeah, great, you have a wind turbine in your field, but you're also like killing some birds and generating these gases. Or, you know, yes, you recycle, but then you're recycling. Like Chicago, I learned like only recycles like six percent of what we throw in our bins. Oh, and, right. So what we need to do is make these other changes. And like, I, I was talking about single use plastics and I was like, yeah, we, we're, we like reuse everything. Our son goes to school with like all the Tupperwares and whatever. Aww. And she's like, yeah, but you use those dental flosses, those single use dental flosses. Like, oh, but I'm not going to floss my teeth if I don't have those. <laughs> like, it's, You just can't win. And so if there's a way that we can improve our earth and our energy output without having to change so many of our habits, I think that you know, we would be able to repair, but yeah, you can't win, but you can't win, but we try to, we, we do what we can. I think if we all put our minds to it, we could get a lot closer to winning though. You know, I agree. I agree. There's like little things. I to, like a shameless plug for, um, Sarah Van Bargen of the yes and yes blog. Ooh. She does a lot of cool things, but her Instagram is like 25% ways that she's cutting down on her carbon footprint. And in a way that's not judgy in a way that's very inspiring and things that I've adopted just like I didn't know you can eat the tops of strawberries oh yeah you can yeah <laughs> right and they're anti-inflammatory and so like okay I won't throw those away I'll put them in smoothies or <laughs> I was just too lazy to cut them off and I threw them in smoothies and nothing bad happened <laughs> nope yeah exactly like you can totally put them in smoothies or a chia bowl or whatever you want to do or the scraps from vegetables if you just freeze them and then you can make stock later mm. And so like all the scraps, like, so we have cut down on like all the, all the scraps. We eat a lot of vegetables, but all the like carrot strippings and onion peels and whatever, just throw it all and you make your own vegetable stock. Like it's those little things that she's very inspiring and gives good ideas um, that are really easy to implement. Carrot tops too. Nice. And that's like such an interesting way to end this podcast (laughs) is just really looking at the amount of good that you put in the world, right? Like I, I feel like you are like this beacon of light for authors in a way that I really, I mean, I haven't really thought that much about publicity, Um, you know, doing the business that we're doing, we're kind of on the Mm pre-publishing side and 
kind of diving into this post-publishing side and how you can get further, but then how we can just all just be better people. It's just a perfect way to kind of end this podcast. Thank you so yeah, much. This, this has amazing. been so much fun. I'm glad we got to chat publishing, but also some other random fun stuff. <laughs> so where can people find you online? So our company, if you're interested, is K Publicity, K-A-Y-E. And if you want to check out your breakout book, it's kpublicity.com slash your breakout book. Um, so if you guys want to receive 15% off your breakout book for life, you can enter manuscript 1515 at checkout and you will have become members for, for life at 15% off. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Dana. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We are so glad that you joined us. And as always, we appreciate your feedback. Just head on over to the iTunes store and let us know what you think. It not only helps us make this podcast be the best it can be, but it also affects our ratings within the iTunes platform. We'd love to hear from you. If you're feeling brave and want to submit your page for our first pages podcast, you can send it to academy at manuscriptwishlist.com with first pages podcast in the subject line. We'd also just love to hear from you. And if you'd like to learn more about the Manuscript Academy and everything we have to offer, just jump on over to manuscriptacademy.com.